0: Welcome to Wind
1: Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone.
0: And I'm Katie Canfield.
1: And we're here to share the week's news in wine.
0: This week on Wind Up Weekly. Diageo profits fall by 47%. Heineken's by over 75%.
1: News from Australia. Australian wine exports steady and a rise in boxed wine sales. UK sales of Tio
0: Pepe up during lockdown.
1: Spirit-infused ice cream made legal in New York.
0: Japanese train station releases wine.
1: And as ever, our Wine of the Week.
0: So to start out with our week in wine, which we won't bore you with too long because we've got some exciting news headlines, as you've heard, I am reporting as ever on the webinar of the week uh, in which Elaine Chacon Brown hosted Oban uh, Clamats' Jim Clendenin. So that was quite a bit of fun. And I actually got to taste some of the wines that were featured, which was 2002 Chardonnay, and then a 2016 Chardonnay. That was the Nuit Blanche au Bouge.
1: Yes, Jim likes his French names.
0: He does indeed. Um, And then also the Isabelle Pinot Noir, there was a 2008 and a 2016 as well. So it was all about kind of the age-worthy quality of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay made in Santa Maria Valley and it was quite fun actually we had those wines open for a couple of days and then blind tasted a good friend of ours who is from france and
1: she's very french
0: (laughs) and she knows her french wines very well so it was a fun blind tasting and we started her on the 2002 chardonnay uh, which she claimed was a 2016 and then we poured the 2016 next to that as a comparison. And yeah, she was in Burgundy and she could not believe that the 2002 was in fact uh, a 2002. She was thinking maybe 2012 was the oldest that it could be. And it had been open for a couple of days still. So shows sort of kind of the longevity that
1: Jim's wines have. The big full bodied but very, very fresh. And it's quite remarkable that a wine that was that rich could still be so fresh 18 years later a real tribute to the winemaking and the quality of the grapes very impressed all round
0: when you had some exciting things happen this week didn't you matthew
1: Yes, my new project, Blackpool Matts Wine Club, is up and running. I ordered my first wine this week and got it delivered, and Katie helped me bring some of the boxes in. It was just like the old days when we worked together in Manchester at Hanging Ditch Wine Merchants, and some fun wine has come in, and will be more, more arriving next week, and so check out my website, because there's a lot of exciting wine to be had and appreciated.
0: Well, and you had your first customer as well, right?
1: Yes, that was Laurie, the French friend we were just talking about. She walked into our office and um, immediately bought three bottles of wine because she is so intrigued by my selections. She's very excited. And she drank one of those that very night, uh, Darcile, a Vigno Verde by Dirk Nieport, which she enjoyed greatly.
0: Well, and if you do sign up for the club, it is a, quite a fun sign-up process. There are some interesting questions that Matthew asks to ascertain your taste in wine. So check it out. Now, on with the news! Bad news for global drinks giant Diageo, who saw an 8.7% fall in net sales in the year ending June 2020, while operating profit fell by 47%. Sales totaled £11.8 billion, with an operating profit of £2.1 billion. The only region which saw an increase in net sales was North America, which accounts for 39% of Diageo's sales, but this was not enough to offset the decline in other regions. Not surprisingly, this decrease was due to COVID-19, as 2019 had ended strongly for the company. Scotch was the category hardest hit, especially as it had already been hit with 25% import tariffs by the U.S., Scotch accounts for nearly a quarter of Diageo's sales, and it fell by 17%, with Johnny Walker particularly badly affected, declining by 22%. In contrast, Canadian and U.S. whiskey increased, as did tequila, helped by the continuing success of the Casamigos brand.
1: Yeah, it seems that Americans are really um, upping their drinking game during COVID-19. All the stories that we've reported on is um, sales going up and up in the US, or the markets not so successful. Um, though it's hard to feel sorry for a really big company like Diageo, and those figures are still really big, um, sales of £11.8 billion. Nevertheless, it does reflect the general trend that the drinks industry is um, suffering um, during this period. And moving to beer, uh, beer giant Heineken was even worse hit due to the closure of bars and restaurants Restaurants around the world. Net profits for the first half of 2020 were down 75.8%, and operating profit down by 52.5%. Beer sales in general were already in decline before the lockdown, uh, but the lockdown made things even worse. From April to June, volume fell by nearly 20%. However, there is some cautious optimism in the beer industry as beer orders are picking up uh, as bars reopened in June and July across the world.
0: Well, as we've seen with the wine industry, you know, similar figures in terms of on-premise sales are obviously way, way down due to uh, bar and restaurant closures, but then retail sales have picked up. So Heineken hasn't really seemed to benefit from the the retail spike.
1: Well, the thing is there, a pint of Heineken in general in a bar is going to be massively overpriced, partly because of taxes, but also because of... um, Prices and bars. Whereas if you go to the supermarket and buy Heineken, the margins are much, much lower. So then they're not going to benefit from those on-sales. Whereas whiskey or tequila actually will benefit from those. Um, the margins in supermarkets and other shops.
0: Okay, well, the same could be said for wine and on premise, the margins are much higher for buying off a wine list than buying in a retail outlet. And then wines by the glass, even more margin. So with all that in mind, and, you know, companies losing out on that, producers losing out on that, um, still seems that wine's doing better than beer.
1: I think there are lots of things. In question there, definitely wineries have been affected by not being able to sell in bars and restaurants. It probably depends on their business model. For a lot of wineries, um, the DTC route has been a dream of theirs, and maybe that's been facilitated now. They've had to go that route, and customers have had to go that route, so maybe they're benefiting from that. Uh, But certainly some wineries that have been restaurant-focused and have only sold to restaurants have definitely had to change their business model and all of a sudden their wines are available. So, for example, I've ordered some Jamie Motley for my wine club. Those wines were impossible to get hold of six months ago and now all of a sudden I can order them.
0: Okay, but then with the Heineken, so if they're losing out on their on-premise sales, obviously in those margins um, from pouring a beer on draft that would go to the restaurant no which is closed and the producer would kind of see the same amount right if they're selling wholesale
1: well i think with heineken and and beer companies like that um, inbev is another one you know their volume is so high and is so depend not dependent on bar sales but a large amount of their beer goes there and to have all these bars and pubs and restaurants closed for so long they're losing a lot and also beer has to be drunk within a month whereas wine Yeah, you can wait 12 months if it's a good wine, whereas, well, Heineken isn't a good beer, and it's certainly not going to last a year, but most beer isn't going to last a year. And so, you know, there's a lot of beer being lost that just couldn't, they couldn't really do anything with it. So I think that's a huge issue as well.
0: Yes, I suppose shelf life plays a major role here. Better news from Australia, where figures released by Wine Australia showed that exports were remaining steady despite the global crisis. The average value of exports in the year ending June 2020 grew to 3 Australian dollars 89 per liter, the highest value since 2004 to 2005. The value of exports fell however but only by one percent though of course the last six months of 2019 were much stronger than the first six months of 2020 falling by seven percent in the first three months and four percent from april to june volume has declined over the past three years due to a succession of smaller vintages which has perhaps helped increased value
1: All right. so this goes back to our conversation that we were just having about all these different drinks categories spirits beer and wine and how they are having different um, trends. You know, it's all related, but wine seems to be um, holding up a little bit better than some of the other categories. And just other news from Australia as well. Uh, Boxed wine has made a comeback. In February, sales of boxed wine rose by just 1%, so pretty insignificant. And that's following sustained decline in the sales of boxed wine. However, figures announced this week show that in March, sales of boxed wine rose by 21%. The rise has been attributed to increased home consumption, demand for affordable wine, and the discovery that the wines are actually of good quality. In general, the fastest-growing price point in Australia right now is between six and ten Australian dollars, while wines dollars are And as elsewhere, online sales are increasingly
0: common. So those figures make sense, seeing as people are, you know, in search of that more affordable wine, uh, but. I'm curious to know of whether this uh, increases domestic consumption or is this international? Where do these figures come from? Uh,
1: this is domestic consumption in Australia. So this is what Australians are drinking. Uh, box wine was really big there in the 80s. And I think its reputation is slightly damaged by the quality of wine that was in box wine. But obviously, in general, wine is now much, much higher quality than it was, you know, in a consistent way. And so there's perfectly decent box wine at those prices. And then the other issue is that the, wine, the packaging is sustainable. And I think that means a lot more to people now than it did in the past.
0: Well, and that's why I'm thinking this is going to be a trend that we see around the globe. I mean, definitely in the US even, we've seen a spike in boxed wine uh, consumption, I think for both sustainable uh, purposes and then also affordability uh, now that people are drinking more at home. And furthermore, this past week, uh, we helped produce a virtual conference, the packaging conference for Wine Business Monthly. Uh, This wasn't included in our wine or our weekend wine, so I'll include it now. Uh, But boxed wine was really one of the big hot topics, you know, for people like big producers, Gallo, uh, you've got Trincaro Wine Estates, you know, they're all going after these uh, beautiful boxed uh, packaging. So it looks really attractive as well. So it's very, you know, appealing on the shelf, uh, the retail shelf, when people go to shop for their wines. And then also the convenience convenience factor and the sustainability, it just seems like you really can't go wrong. And I think they're trying to improve quality as well as, as we've seen in Australia.
1: Yeah. And one other thing is that box wine can last longer than um, other packaging. So it can actually last up to a month. So that's another advantage that consumers are um, drawn to. More sales figures, theme of this week's pod. And this news is surprisingly positive. Uh, This week, sherry producer Gonzalez Baez reported that in the UK, from April to June, sales of Tio Pepe, its flagship wine rose by 33%, outperforming the overall sherry category. They also reported that their sherry portfolio in general had seen impressive growth during those three months. The Tio Pepe and Rama release was also very successful in the UK, with bottles having to be pulled from other markets to meet demand. These positive figures come despite the fact that Tio Pepe and the Enverma bottling are usually quite dependent on on bar and restaurant sales. However, Gonzalez-Bias speculated that brand familiarity is important for some consumers and everyone knows Tio Pepe, while others have been more likely to shop in independent stores and therefore experiment. Well,
0: it is summertime here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, so I'd say a nice Fino sherry is just what was in order.
1: Yeah, one thing they didn't comment upon was um, the fact, I think we reported on this in the pod a few weeks ago, that port sales are also on the rise. And that's because if people are drinking at home, they're more um, inclined to drink a higher alcohol wine because they're not driving. So maybe um, drinking some sherry at home is part of that as well. And of course the UK has a big sherry market and these wines are very familiar to consumers.
0: Huh, that's very interesting and, you know, something I agree with 100%. I, Whenever I like to enjoy a glass of Fino Sherry, you know, you have to do so uh, in moderation because they are, you know, 15% alcohol. So uh, there is something to be said about having it in the comfort of your own home where you don't have to get behind the wheel. <coughs> New York Governor Andrew Cuomo passed legislation this week which allows spirit-infused ice cream to meet quote increasing consumer demand. The legislation is designed to help state farmers and the dairy industry and the move follows the legislation of ice cream containing wine back in 2008 and beer and cider in 2018. The ice cream cannot contain more than 5% alcohol and will have the same labeling as other products that contain alcohol such as chocolate. Cuomo commented that the move will continue to support, quote, the craft beverage industry and is part of an overall initiative to relax legislation for small producers. Farm-based alcohol licenses have increased from 282 in 2012 to 823 currently.
1: So in general, I'm in favor of uh, relaxing legislation like this and encouraging um, craft producers and small producers at the same time. Spirit-infused ice cream does not fill me with enthusiasm. Uh, What do you think of this, Katie?
0: At the end of the day, we kind of have to give the spirit producers something to go off of, right? I mean, we I think they're already filled the quota for hand sanitizer, so maybe this is the next step.
1: And do you think this is just a New York thing, or is this something that we see across the US? I've never really heard of this concept.
0: Well, I think that will depend on consumer demand. I think this will hit the shelves. I'm not really quite sure what happened in 2008. And if that really, you know, when wine and ice cream was combined, I'm not sure what success that had or with beer and cider in 2018. I haven't heard much on those figures, so I think that might give us a good idea.
1: All right. So it seems a very New York thing then, this increasing consumer demand for um, alcohol-flavoured ice cream. And one thing that um, we forget about New York, we think about it being a really, really big city, which obviously it is, but New York State itself is actually quite rural and does have a lot of farm and dairy um, industries, which obviously the governor is trying to support. A fun story from Japan, where a train station has released its first wine. The station is located in the city of Shiojiri, in the centre of Japan, where a number of wine regions are located. Merlot and Niagara vines were first planted on two platforms in the station in 1988, but wine has never been made from them before. Instead they've been used for research purposes and to promote wine to tourists visiting the area. They've been pruned and harvested by volunteer locals and station staff with the help of local experts. And the decision to make wine was taken to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Shiojiri's elevation to city status. The wine is made by a local producer, with just 100 bottles to be released. So, very small production. I love the idea of vines growing on platforms in a train station. One of the things I miss most about Europe is trains. And the Japanese love trains as well. And so it's a very nice combination in this story of trains and wine, which um, is enough for me.
0: Well, and who doesn't want a glass of wine on their commute home from work?
1: Especially if it's been made from vines that you can see as you leave the station.
0: (music) And now for our wine of the week,
1: which is, Katie?
0: Champagne, Mousset Fils, Terre Lite. Two thousand twelve. A birthday wine. A birthday gift. Anyway,
1: and uh, we've mentioned Laurie a couple of a couple of times in this pod. She's the star of this episode. She really is, and she brought this bottle along on Thursday, at, in celebration of my birthday. Yeah, uh, and we absolutely loved it. Obviously, we always loved champagne. We tasted it blind, and we both thought it was. Um, a fruitier version of champagne. But we didn't really think about Mernier, which is this which, which this wine is made from, uh, because not much champagne is made from Mernier. We're thinking more Pinot Noir. But mm-hmm. this producer, Moussé fils really specialises in Mernier, the third grape of champagne. In fact, 80% of their plantings are of Mernier.
0: Yeah, so the producer dates back to the 1750s, based in the village of Quizle. I'm T- probably totally butchering that pronunciation, in Valle de la Marne, center of Mounier plantings, which is where this wine comes from. 95% Mounier, 5% Pinot Noir. So we were close, Matthew. I think I said 65% Pinot Noir, and you said 60
1: Yes, we were definitely on the Pinot Noir bandwagon, but when it was announced that it was actually many, it made a lot of sense because it was quite fruity Mm -hmm. and rich, though it still had a very um, lively acidity, it was very balanced, we like this wine a lot. And it's called Terre d'Élite because Élite means green clay, which is um, what the vines are grown on. And it's from 2012.
0: Yep, with four and a half years on lees before bottling, Uh, 5 grams per litre dosage, and I think we were pretty on point with the Lee's aging, actually. You said five years, so it's not too far off.
1: No, it's, again, it's that richness. It's quite spicy and nutty, a bit of maturity to it as well. Uh, very balanced uh, champagne, quite full, but elegant as well. And I have to say, it did not take as long to finish this bottle. It was a hot summer's day. The, the wine was absolutely perfect for um, the sandwiches you made. Yes,
0: so thank you, or merci, Laurie.
1: Yes, we are very appreciative and we enjoyed it greatly.
0: Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield.
1: I'm Matthew Gorn.
0: Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us.
1: Especially if the reviews are positive.
0: That's right. See you next week.
1: Cheerio.